If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. And today I'm so excited. Our guest is Suju Rajan. She is the head of research over at Critio, and she holds a PhD in machine learning from University of Texas. Welcome to the show. Uh, great to be here, Byron. Do you know, um, we're based in Austin, and so I drive by your alma mater every day almost. So uh, it's kind of like a hometown interview. Oh, that's pretty cool. Go Longhorns. <laughs> that's right. You know, you, you aren't, uh, we're recording this in, in August, and uh, you picked a good time not to be here, you know? I can imagine. Yeah. Um, I think when I graduated, they actually um, were at the Rose Bowl. If not, they actually won it. So I'm happy I was there at the right time. <laughs> there you go. So I always like to start with the simple question, which is, what is artificial intelligence? Or if you prefer, what is intelligence? Um, let's go with artificial intelligence because I don't think I'm quite qualified to answer what is intelligence overall um, in some way. Um, I would like to possibly have, uh, let's say, the classical definition of artificial intelligence that I uh, am, um, what can I say, it's more textbook, right? So this is where the whole field started off a few decades ago, in fact, where the goal was to create um, intelligence in machines, which, uh, which was comparable to human level intelligence. And what does that mean? What do we think when we say someone is intelligent, right? So it is the ability for us to reason, um, to be able to extrapolate to situations that we hadn't uh, been in before and to come out of it <laughs> relatively unscathed in some sense, right? So the ability to reason, uh, to make sort of causal uh, decisions, uh, to be able to solve a longer term problem than just the task at hand. Uh, and the ability for machines to do this is what I think is the standard of artificial intelligence. So, so that's a really high bar because, you know, a, a simple definition is, you know, systems that respond to their, in, to their environments. Yeah. yeah. So, so let me... So, uh, go ahead. So let me take it a step down, right? So that's, to your point, my high bar. Uh, today, the way artificial intelligence is being used overall um, in uh, media and maybe in some portions of even uh, the community is uh, the ability to perform really well at certain specific tasks at a level that is comparable uh, to what a human would do. Now, nobody questions uh, is it really human-like because it's within a very constrained environment within the space of the data that the uh, thing has been trained on. And if you look at some of these tests that were done, uh, it's in a very narrow domain. Now, do we all agree that that is artificial intelligence becomes an interesting debate? Uh, but I want to say that the mainstream has focused a lot more on intelligence in very narrow specific tasks. But I wouldn't call it artificial intelligence. All right. So your particular area of study is, is a technique used in artificial intelligence called machine learning. And machine learning, simply put, is you take a lot of data about the past and you study it and you make projections about the future. Is that fair, a fair, like, oversimplification? A fair oversimplification, yes. And so 
the philosophic implication of that is that the future behaves like the past. And, yep. and in a lot of cases, that's what a cat looks like tomorrow is probably what a cat looked like yesterday. But mm-hmm. what a cell phone looks like tomorrow is not what a cell phone looked like 10 years ago, right? Yep. So what are areas that, and, and, and chess, how chess is played tomorrow is the same as been played for 400 years. So that's a really good application of it. What, what are some good applications of AI and, and things that aren't so good? Um, okay, uh, great question here again. So uh, I think you sort of nailed the whole uh, answer, right? So imagine that your goal is somewhat fixed, right? And we as humans know what that goal needs to be. Um, so if you could figure out that all that you had this system to do was to recognize uh, cats in a picture. And this is a very, very well-defined problem. Uh, Maybe we mess up how we train the model. We are not careful to how it can be attacked and so on and so forth. But within the scope of these sorts of problems, right, where the goal is clearly well-defined. So chess, uh, for all its beauty, uh, is still a constrained problem, right? Um, There is a fixed space that you can um, explore. And maybe I'm over-trivializing this, but in some sense, it's a constrained problem. So it's here that we have made lots of good progress. And at least the algorithms that we are inventing are are enabling us to make lots of good progress in that sphere. Now, what is it not good at is uh, to be able to um, do a longer term uh, task. So imagine that um, there was this interesting problem that uh, someone was talking to me about, right? So if you wanted to graduate from a a school with a a good um, um, GPA, or if you wanted to land a specific job, now what is the set of courses that you would have to take? How would you have to perform and so on and so forth, right? But the kind of data that we had to solve this particular problem uh, through an AI system, um, it became so trivialized that uh, it was almost laughable, right? The sorts of uh, things that came out of it. So in terms of a long-term projection where the path is not as fuzzy, Um, sorry, is pretty fuzzy. And it really comes down to human experience and having to talk to bunches of people and constantly learning and readjusting um, and so on and so forth. So these sorts of longer term goals uh, in which the end state is not as clear, we have a long, 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 long way to go. Do you think that human language can be understood by a computer just by stu- can you predict the next thing I'm going to say by studying everything everybody's ever said before in the history of recorded words? <laughs> uh, okay, can the computer predict it? Uh, yes, with maybe a high probability. Uh, in fact, if we had taken all of uh, Biden's conversations over uh, lots of lots of times, uh, we are able to to a good. Uh, extent uh, model what your next statement could be. But would it be able to understand the context in which you're going to do and to have a meaningful conversation off of that? Uh, Again, I'm going to call, let's call it a longer term objective, right? So within a shorter term context, uh, right now, what would you say as the next word in a sequence of words? So within that window, maybe we might do a pretty good job or uh, maybe some phrases that you might 
uh, use um, um, as fantastic or whatever, right? So these sorts of filler things, just because by the frequency in which they appear and the context in which you say it, maybe yes. But can a computer have the sort of conversation that we are having where it's able to reason over long sentences, relate back to the fact that I said something about Austin, inject it? Uh, I don't think we are there yet. Banana, banana, hedgehog. Now, no machine would have ever predicted I would say that next, would it have? No, no, it wouldn't have, no. And likewise, if I started a sentence and said, today I feel really, it doesn't have any way. It could, it could know every time I've ever said that before in, my, in the past, and it would have no insight whatsoever as to how I would feel in, today, right? Uh, okay, but um, this is going to sound sort of creepy, not to say that people are building this in any way. Um, again, um, the notion is not to um, understand everything that's going on, but imagine we had this sort of a complex system, right, that knew, um, and if it had monitored you, this is where it, where the big catch is when we talk about how intelligent these things can be, and if we were to personalize it to this level, imagine that we could have observed Byron and the way he uses language in a variety of different contexts, but see, it's not just the speech patterns, it's the context in which you are saying things. Right. Um, and maybe if I take it a level creepier, maybe if we, if we had monitored how um, uh, um, you uh, did chores around your house, maybe you woke up mad and maybe it even comes down to the physical signs. Right. Maybe you have an elevated blood pressure, your temperature is a bit high in your perspiring and blah, blah. So these thoughts, if we had gobs of this sort of context, um, then it's I could say that maybe it's possible to say, hey, in the context of these things, given what he has done in the past, this is what he would predict. But the amount of signal um, that needs to go in and the amount of data that you would have had to have to make this sort of a prediction is almost insane. And it, uh, to your point, then it comes down to, do you even trust a system which would uh, look at you at that level? And I'm going to say it's not infeasible, uh, but again, it requires a lot of uh, work to be done. Well, that's, that's really interesting because I guess your thesis is that if you, if you had cameras that saw everything I did and, and read every emotion in my face and, to your point, my blood pressure, my pulse, and, and the, the, the tone of my voice and I all wonder, of those. Uh-huh. Exactly, right? So I want to counter it with, uh, um, I don't know, a good friend or a, or a spouse, right? Uh, at some point, we, we kind of know what this person is going to say, right? Uh, what makes that possible, right? It's years and years of observing how uh, Byron behaves in certain settings. And maybe if you had been friends with someone for long and you come into a restaurant and you're looking mad, they can look at your face and they kind of know that you're mad, right? And they know what Byron's mad vocabulary uh, sounds like, like when you're feeling mad vocabulary, sorry. Um, but how do we as humans even learn this, right? It's observing how you behave in these contexts and getting all these cues. It's not just based off of the words that you say. So, I ask the the question about language because you know the Turing test is a, is a commonly known yep. can a, can a machine think Turing said that you know if you're chatting with it on a you know like text messaging it and the the computer gets you to pick it thirty percent of the time you have to say the machine is thinking and so I guess really what my question is boiling down to is if you had to build something that passed the Turing test would you use machine learning? primarily 
as the, the tool to do it. And the only reason we have it now is we simply don't have enough data. Um, that's not, well, um, again, it's not just a question of data. Do we have algorithms that can uh, do what we call uh, causal inference? Um, do we have algorithms that are able to have a, a good sense of uh, how uh, probable any possible uh, situation is? Um, as an example, do we have, uh, and uh, again, coming back to your oversimplification, right? Uh, and as I said, as long as your task is well scoped, um, you will be able to define a metric for it and you can train a model, right? So machine learning works perfectly in these cases. Now, uh, for things like a long uh, haul conversation, what is even uh, the metric that you would tune the model on? It goes beyond the scope of the sort of uh, research that we have done uh, in recent days. Maybe we have started to think on those lines, uh, but it is research that still needs to be done, right? So... I am not going to be able to tell you it's just machine learning with lots of data. Uh, new fields of research even have to be invented uh, for this sort of thing uh, to happen. So it's not machine learning as we know it, which is going to solve this problem. So the first thing I always ask, you know, whatever bot I come across is what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? And nobody's ever answered that. And, and we, we understand why how, you know, a nickel and a person would know a nickel. I'm referring to the coin because it's round like the sun and blah, blah, blah. But here's a hard question for a computer, which is um, Dr. Smith is eating lunch at his favorite restaurant when he receives a phone call. Mm -hmm. He rushes out the door neglecting to pay his bill. Are the owners likely to prosecute? And a person takes that all apart and says, well, Dr. Smith's eating at his favorite restaurant. He's a doctor. And he probably just got a, an emergency call. And so, no, they're going to not prosecute him. They're going to, you know, he'll settle up another time. But to your, what I just heard you say is a question like that, we, we, don't, even, we don't even have the basic tools to teach a computer to answer that question. And we're going to need new algorithms and new data and new ways of thinking to do it. Right. Uh, so, yeah, when you, when your question was as simple as, can you predict the next word, I say, even for that, I had to say, hey, if you gave me blah, 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 right? But the whole context of this thing, uh, yes, but somehow as humans, we have learned, right? Maybe because we have been in similar situations, we know when humans have different relationships with owners, with the proprietors, the knowledge that goes into it. And how do you represent this knowledge in a way that computers can reason with it. Yes, we have barely, barely scratched the surface. Well, you know, it's interesting because, and, and I'm going to ask you a series of questions now, how, how do you think people are like machines? Because when I, I can confidently say, if you, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, it's going to hurt. And then somebody would say, have you ever hit your thumb with a hammer? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And then they would say, when? And I can't remember any time in particular. And so somehow humans are really good at taking data and somehow extracting metadata or learning or something hmm. out of it. Like we can remember the conclusion, don't hit your thumb with a hammer, without having to remember ever having done it. Hmm. Um, do we do anything like that in machine learning? Or is it just simply brute force studying of data? Uh. I am hard-pressed here to come up with a good analogy. Are we able to 
reason in a way um, or be okay <laughs> i don't think so okay at least i'm not aware of any work that is able to extrapolate even at this level um and i'm going to give you a pretty weak answer over here uh, maybe the closest that i can think of is just in terms of um, uh, maybe one of the most talked about things right like language translation as an example right um so maybe we use things like hey do not construct sentences in this way and try to translate it to um, other languages but even that doesn't quite compute um no so my answer is going to be no i don't think we have machine learning algorithms which are able to extrapolate in the way you're talking about that because of this context i cannot apply it in a different context just because i remember it no so it's almost as if machines are able to play chess but they're not playing chess in any way shape or form it's kind of like you can use a microwave to, to make a corn dog or you can put it in the oven and they both, you know, create a hot corn dog, but they don't work anything alike. Um, and so I'm curious with people, hmm. you can train a person with the sample size of one. Hmm. You can, I could, I could draw a realistic drawing of an alien with tentacles coming out of its nose and 14 feet and nine eyes and whatever. And then I could say, find that in this fo in, in this series of photographs. And even if it's upside down or half obscured or what have you, uh, I can go, there it is, 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 there it is. So why can't we do that with machines? Why do we need so many hmm. examples of, of something to teach a machine, but a person can do it with one? Awesome question. <laughs> so um, think about, um, and, and uh, I'm uh, going to uh, borrow a little bit of what I heard at KDD just today, right? So um, Alex Muller, one of the leading researchers, was uh, uh, talking about the perfect storm, right? And uh, how there is this good uh, confluence of uh, the data and the infrastructure and the tools which also sort of influence the algorithms that we are coming out with, right? And um, if you, and that's all, and I stop my reference to him, but going on to my personal take on uh, um, this. So uh, if you look at the algorithms that have come out, right, that is driving some of these uh, uh, recent things, about how computers are able to do a fantastic job at recognizing objects and whatnot, it really comes down to, it learning from gobs and gobs of data, the sort of algorithms that you need to fit this giant uh, convolutional neural network with so many different parameters. And to be able to train a network at that scale, um, you really need an enormous ton of labeled data even uh, to pass it back and forth so that this network even converges. Now, that's one aspect of machine learning. And um, by all means, it serves its own purpose. It's a good field of exploration. And we have the compute power. And let's go along that because it's serving some specific need. Now, flip it aside. Is this the most efficient way to train something? Perhaps not. Uh, should we reimagine uh, modelizations which enable us to do these tasks more efficiently without using as much labeled data? Absolutely, yes. But again, this is research that needs to happen because at the end of the day, the sorts of algorithms that we have uh, uh, playing with, which are more mainstream now, require gobs of data, right? Um, and I don't think 
Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, if you were to put a gun to my head and say, hey, come up with something which recognizes a cat with just one example of it, I'll completely overfit and obviously it's going to fail. Um, so yeah, as a field, we need to evolve more in terms of how these things are designed. But I uh, kind of want to add on a little bit as well, right? So if you see what has uh, uh, driven most of the progress in this field, it stems from the ability to have tons of data, right? The fact that AI is having a second resurgence, A, is because of the compute power that we now have. So we are able to train these giant networks. B, is also access to the tremendous amount of data that we are able to uh, collect as well, right? Uh, the fact that uh, uh, searches are uh, what uh, several uh, billions, uh, possibly a month. Um, so the ability that we are having this sort of data, the amount of digitized text, the amount of online photographs that have been tagged that are being made available. Um, so maybe it's the richness of data that is making us think about, hey, we have all of this. Now, what are cool things that we can um, build from having access to this data? Uh, maybe that is what is driving the current uh, field of uh, work in a certain uh, sense. Um, and it's going to take us a while to now step back and say, hey, maybe it is not as efficient. What can we do better if we had less? Because right now we are suffering from a richness of data. You know, I wonder if people, if, if, if I were to ask you to imagine a trout swimming in a river, mm. And imagine a trout in a jar of formaldehyde in a laboratory. Okay? These are two things you probably don't have a bunch of familiarity with, I'm guessing. And I were to say, um, are they the same temperature? You would say, well, no. Do they smell the same? Um, no. Do they weigh the same? Yes. Are they the same color? Maybe. Um, and I could just throw a bunch of things like that at you. And with little experience, with little familiarity with the topic, you can answer all the questions almost instantly and nail them. Hmm. And so what we're doing there, I'm guessing, is taking a bunch of knowledge. But you may not have a lot of familiarity with anything in a jar of formaldehyde. So you're now, your brain is saying, okay, well, I'm just going to imagine it in fluid. And I know formaldehyde has an odor, maybe. And I know I've never seen a fish in a, a trout in a river, but, uh, you know, I know what animals are like. And so we do all of these, like, multi-level transfer learning things that we don't even ever, we don't ever deliberately think about. It, it just comes so naturally. And it makes me wonder if we aren't this incredibly sparse matrix of we have this incredibly sparse matrix of data and we have this incredibly rich knowledge that comes out of it because we're so good at just intuitively applying something here or from there. You know, um, you bring a great, great, great point to this, right? Um, um, I want to um, uh, say something about uh, um, Tom Mitchell, who is a professor in CMU, who was uh, doing this work on uh, NEL, which was never-ending learning, right? And it's uh, striking a chord of thought over here. So why am I able to answer these questions, right? So it's it's life experience overall, right? The fact that you kind of have heard somewhere that trout is a fish and this is what fishes do uh, in rivers and you know about labs, you know about animals and uh, 
of jars. And so you've seen this, right? And somehow you have all of this uh, experience that you're able to reason out of. Now, um, that's a lot of data, right? <laughs> and so what uh, Tom did with Nell was basically to use um, textual data, right? So all the news articles of the world and all of the uh, written uh, stuff to compute something that is always learning, right? Learning about relationships within entities, what words appear in the context of other words. So you're able to reason on top of this sort of a um, uh, knowledge base that you can build. But think about it, it's just one aspect of it, right? So uh, you, you might have to go find gobs and gobs of written text about how animals uh, in um, the wild do from animals in labs and to be able to infer that, hey, there is the smell associated with it. So to some extent, we as humans are learning from a tremendous amount of sensory signals as well, right? The things that we see, uh, the things that we smell, the experiences that we have had, which sort of help us to to, you, to your point, transfer uh, from one environment to another. And maybe that's what is uh, helping us. And even though I'm saying it's uh, data richness, maybe I should have qualified it to say data richness in the form of uh, written uh, text. Maybe we are getting there with uh, voice-based communications, but in some minimalistic way still. Um, but how do you encapsulate everything that you learn as a human, right? And people always keep saying, hey, how do babies learn from these few examples? But it's not just that, right? The pain that you observe. And how do we encode this information, get it to talk to other parts? What's the architecture that we would have to build? Um, becomes an interesting problem. In fact, uh, yeah, it's an amazing problem to think about. <laughs> well, I, I will only ask one more human question, which is, so if humans do this, if we, we hit our, our, our thumb with the hammer and mm -hmm. we uh, don't remember it, but we remember the learning, yep. and somehow that information is encoded in a brain in a way we don't understand, Yep. Uh, because there's not a location where the fact hitting your thumb with a hammer hurts. There's no location in my brain where you say, ah, that's that. If I cut that out, you'll no longer know that. Mm -hmm. um, then the idea that we don't really, so then we're able to like cross pollinate all this knowledge effortlessly. Like we're not even thinking it through. We just instinctively, quote unquote, instinctively know these things. Mm -hmm. And then we have all of this knowledge. Isn't that so dissimilar to what we do with machine learning that we can't really study the brain to know any more about how do we how do we make you know better machine learning algorithms? So uh, maybe um, this is a good segue in some sense, right? Uh, I guess the larger question we have to ask ourselves is. Uh, uh, we have so many interesting problems that we need to solve, right, with uh, data. There are so many ways in which life can be made more efficient um, if we used um, existing tools per se, right, to solve some of the interesting problems. Is uh, What is the end goal we are getting to here? Is it to create a replica of a human uh, mind and a human uh, no, no, no. I think I, I, I agree completely with, I think, where you're going. And that's what I, what I was going to say is that, so what is it that we do something that seems almost magical and we get these kind of amazing results? What, but machines do something else completely different. They do math very quickly. And so yeah. flipping that coin over, what are things that machines can do now 
that no human can even come close to? What kinds of things are these machines going to let us do that all the people in all the world well, will never be able to? Maybe uh, um, I'll give you an example straight out of uh, my current application that I'm working on or even anything else that I've been thinking of, right? So search engine as an example, right? Um, imagine that you literally had, uh, and uh, when did I look this up? Uh, maybe a couple of days back, close to 1.9 billion websites in the world, right? So imagine that I told you as a human to, hey, given a search query, find me the best out of this 1.9 billion websites, uh, that particular web page that I need to answer to this particular person. Can we as humans even think about solving this problem? It's impossible, right? Even if we put together all of our lifetimes in some sense. So these are the sorts of tasks that machines are doing a great, great, great job at these days that humans are not even thinking about. Now, the question is, do we need to spend our time thinking about that or do we try to make lives more efficient in other ways? So really making sense, uh, but not necessarily reasoning. So maybe trying to find patterns which humans have encoded in some way to be able to retrieve nuggets of information from large treasure troves of data is what I think machines are doing a really good job at these days. And so what are some examples of things that whether we have the data yet or, or, or not, paint me a picture of all the good things that you believe we're going to use machines to do. I mean, we know uh, they'll diagnose disease. They'll, they'll match it to cures better. They will. But what, what are some other ones? Just like stimulate our minds for a moment with like your wish list of problems you would love to see machines focused on anything that has got to do with uh, uh, human loss of life, um, I believe that we, um, well, maybe again, um, I'm not, um, okay. As an example, let's say the whole California fires, right? So uh, the point that I was trying to ask myself is if we had lots and lots of good sensor data about what the wind movement was like, what the soil temperature, could, uh, sorry, moisture level could have been, uh, the precipitation patterns over the years. If we could have sort of pulled together all of this knowledge, of course, we didn't have sensors for a lot of these things and fires don't happen, thank God, as often as they, uh, um, uh, they don't happen as often. Uh, if we could have pulled together all of this, can we come up with a model that can prevent this sort of large scale uh, human devastation, right? I think the sensor technology is there. It's cheap enough. Uh, the compute power is there. Um, we are able to model these things a lot more efficiently. What is the direction in which the wind can move, right? People in working in uh, uh, climate sciences have been doing this for a very, very long time. So places where uh, human life can somehow be saved, I would love to see uh, machines being able to help us more, right? Maybe even be able to predict, hey, um, it's highly likely that, but it's very hard to predict where exactly a fire is going to happen. So that's almost impossible in some sense. But once it happens, what could be a good containment plan to prevent this from spreading further? Again, I'm trivializing the whole problem and maybe I don't even understand the space enough. But if we could do something on that scale, that would be something that is like, uh, amazing for me. The second part is, of course, health, which is getting a lot of good attention these days. 
And you would think that, um, and I'm also going to uh, share uh, uh, something about uh, pregnancy, right? For the number of humans who uh, give child, uh, who give birth to children, uh, it's still a very uh, unknown process, right? And there is a lot of anxiety around whether um, the kids are developing well. There are all sorts of these um, loss of life, which could have been avoided if we had somehow gotten the data together, right? And heart attacks as well, uh, in the sense that the sensations that you get before you actually have a heart attack are pretty, um, again, I'm trivializing this from the few examples that I know we should have a, a sit-down conversation, but this is something I would love to see solved. And I've, I'm hearing of, of folks putting together all of these physical symptoms, the medicines that you have been taking, what are your sensations now? So between the point that you start getting the uh, feeling of uh, how your heart is not doing well to what would be the next steps before you get to a hospital. So anything that can help us, uh, what can I say, reduce the unnecessary loss of human life is where I would love to see machine learning uh, take a, a better step. You know, the, the tricky thing about it, of course, is that <clears throat> the same tools that we build <laughs> to read through all of them can be used for very bad reasons. Right. I mean, like now where it used to be everybody's privacy was protected because there's just so many people and so much data. But now, you know, every phone call can, can be voice to text and now AIs can read lips. So you've got cameras everywhere. They also can, and facial recognition is coming into its own so that a despotic government will find it ever easier to build and uh, to build profiles on every single person based on every word they say and all of that. I mean, I'm an optimist by nature. I write optimistically, but there's no, there's no easy answer to that, is there? No, I, you're perfectly right. And I think for every good thing that you want to create, there could be nefarious elements that want to use the data in a not so nice way, right? And uh, um, of course, notions of, I think anywhere where there is money to be made, unfortunately, people get creative about how you could misuse or abuse the data. Now, how do we prevent this from happening? Uh, and also the larger question of what is my data being used for, right? Maybe um, I don't care about uh, um, having my data shared for whatever reasons, right? It's a personal choice. At the end of the day, it is my signals, my data. Um, and no, I. it's a question I think we as a society need to start thinking about soon. Because with the more development that we have with AI, the more data that is possible to get uh, collected. And right now, even right, the watches that we wear on our hands are capable of collecting how good your heart rate is, how much are you moving, is it a healthy lifestyle? So this is already being done. And we rely on the collectors of this data to stand by their promise that, yes, uh, we are not going to use your data in some sort of a nefarious way. But who enforces it? What happens when push comes to shove? And these are questions that I think as a society we haven't even started thinking about. But in all fairness, uh, for us to have evolved to a state that we understand what a law about something has to be, that thing needs to have existed for a while, right? And this whole um, uh, revolution with data and all of the things that we can do with it, the possibility of doing these things, if you think about it, it's fairly recent. In fact, has happened within uh, not even our whole lifetime, right? A part of our lifetimes. And I think we are at the cutting edge in some sense. And 
and it's heartening to know that companies want to come together to create an AI for good. What are these policies? But it needs to have a lot more voices in the table. It needs a lot more participation than just a few big companies putting together a consortium of sorts, even though they control a lot of the data. But how do we reimagine the field going forward? Um, yeah, uh, we have our work cut out for us. But uh, yeah, it's an exciting time as well. Do you think that privacy as an idea was just a, a really short-lived fad? That like, you know, we used to live in these small communities, 300 people or whatever, and everybody knew everything about everybody else. And you lived with your parents and your grandparents and everybody knew everybody's business. And then the Industrial Revolution came along. People moved out. They moved to the city. Anonymity was born. They got an apartment. And, and since then, people have had a lot of privacy. And now all these tools make our lives radically transparent again. So do you think the normal state of humanity is no privacy and we're just returning to that and we kind of have to get used to it or not? It's, <laughs> uh, but um, okay, I'm going to just, uh, maybe it's a weird thought experiment, but even in your uh, version before, right, where it was a small community where everyone knew everything in some sense, I would still say we had some control, right? Uh, it still was up to um, you to decide, yes, people knew when I went in, when I went out, but they didn't know anything more than that, right? They uh, possibly could not have seen, hey, what books did this person uh, read um, in their own leisure time? Uh, what music did they listen to? Alternatively, yeah, they know you went to a museum, right? So in some sense, you still had a notion. I would not say that we never were private uh, Maybe there was a semblance that within a small community, and of course your family knows a lot about you, but these days we express a lot through uh, online medium and whatnot, and that gets us into trouble more often than we would like. But I would say humans have always had a notion of privacy, and uh, we always will want some amount of privacy and control of what everybody knows. And the farther away the degree of network that gets to know, the more uncomfortable we become. And I don't see that changing, personally speaking. So you're the head of research at Critio. Tell us a little bit about your company and what you do there. What are you researching? Okay, so what Critio does is uh, it helps the brands of the world and the retailers of the world uh, to get the word out uh, about the products that they have uh, to the users around the world. And uh, to give you an example, um, and maybe this is an interesting one. So let's say, um, as an example, we have a big box uh, retailer or uh, let's say a maker of some fancy shoes and they have this new product and they want to figure out who is going to buy this product so they can show it to them and convince them to purchase. And I'm trying to say at the end of the day, um, advertising is what gets people aware of what is being sold. And that has always been the format, right? Since ages past. Now, the question is, uh, how do you reach people online in a meaningful way, right? So obviously, if you're reading some very um, um, not so great article, uh, or it's in a very different context, showing an ad to you doesn't make sense. Uh, so when does it make sense for us to show an ad about a product that you're likely to purchase? So it needs to have some sort of a value to the advertiser to show the ad to you as well. Or maybe it is awareness in some sense that they want to uh, 
tell the consumers of the world, hey, we are here and here is a shoe that we buy. So how do we make that connect? So maybe I uh, live in a um, very um, hot, hot part of the world and I'm never going to buy a woolen coat as an example, right? So it's meaningless to say, uh, show this ad to this person out there uh, because you're never going to convert. So how do you find the right people who possibly could be interested in the products that advertisers and uh, retailers um, and brands want to get them in front of. So a connect can be made and uh, hopefully everybody is happy on both sides. So that's what we try to solve. And so as the head of research, like what are some of the kinds of practical problems you tackle? Okay, so um, exactly the scale of the data, right? So uh, these are anonymized uh, sources in some sense, right? So I don't, uh, if you think about the sorts of data that we have, uh, Credio, as an example, feels close to uh, 200 billion ad requests a day. That's 200 billion, right? So we need to be able to decide, hey, do we even get to show an ad at this particular instance? Uh, how much do we have to pay for this particular opportunity um, so that it's meaningful to the advertiser and there is a reasonable chance that there is value that is going to be generated from this transaction. So the scale at that, it has to happen. And after we do, uh, the number of personalized ads that we show so that it's meaningful that a woolen coat is shown to a person who is living in a cold country um, is actually 3.5 billion, right? So how do we make sense of all of the data uh, so that we are able to show the right ad uh, to the right person is a challenging problem overall. And um, going back to something that we were touching upon earlier, so whenever money is involved, and there is always this uh, element of people getting creative. Uh, so the advertising ecosystem, um, for the most part, has is a pretty complicated mechanism because money is involved, right? So there are always uh, publishers of sites, um, online sites who are trying to monetize, right? So content, again, um, another thing we as humans have to work on is uh, the economics of, of free content in some sense. Today, what drives that is online advertising, right? So the publishers are trying to make uh, the people who put up the content, right? The New York Times, the CNNs of the world, and I guess even the gigahomes of the world show ads, right? So this is how you monetize. So the question is, um, they are trying to make the most money. Um, the advertisers obviously do not want to overspend, right? They only want to spend the right amount of money so that they are able to drive customers to come uh, to their store to buy things at their store. So there is a sort of a conflicting thing. There is a part of the group which wants to make a lot and there is a part that needs to be efficient. So how do you balance this whole uh, transactions in a way that everyone's happy at the end of the day. And as you can imagine, trying to make everybody happy is a hard problem. So I'm oversimplifying this, but uh, how do you come up with algorithms that are sensitive to changes in the market and which still try to maximize the revenue goals for our advertisers is, uh, uh, is fairly challenging and it requires us to be uh, thinking outside of uh, some of the traditional machine learning algorithms as well. And of course the scale, uh, because um, at any given point, uh, uh, being able to field as many ads as the ones that I was talking about, it literally means we have less than 10 milliseconds to make a decision sometimes. Uh, so the latest, greatest uh, uh, deep net model with 100 layers would not suffice, right? So you still need to be intelligent about the features that go into these models. So uh, creating new areas of research uh, around these topics is what the group focuses on. So do you believe that like the kinds of technologies you're building 
have general purpose beyond your specific application? Like, are you building tools that can be used to solve all kinds of other problems? Or are the kinds of problems you're tackling really very narrow to the, the task at hand? Great question. So um, this is something that uh, is interesting, right? So I think of machine learning research overall um, as being transferable uh, in some sense that uh, uh, the algorithms that you've come up with are not necessarily driven by the application. Application being advertising versus music prediction versus, I don't uh, healthcare prediction and so on and so forth. So um, the short answer is uh, no, we are not building so very specialized algorithms to this uh, use case. As an example, uh, let me talk to you about uh, recommendations, right? So after we decide that an ad needs to be shown, we need to figure out what product we Put in that ad, which makes sense, right? So um, uh, the point of this whole exercise is to understand user preferences so you match them up. Now, where do you see the commonality to this problem? Almost anything else that you do, right? Uh, uh, the music that you hear, the news articles that are being recommended to you, maybe the movies that Netflix wants to queue up. So in a broad sense, uh, the tools that we build are transferable to other parts or other similar tasks. Um, of course, advertising has a specific constraints, uh, but the constraints are not baked into the model itself for the most part. So, you know, I, I, I think everybody kind of is on board with, I don't want to be shown a wool coat in the middle of, well, if I'm, if I'm living in the tropics. I mean, like, maybe not everybody. I, maybe I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people find that to be good. Hmm. And, um, and you know, the, the ad you click on isn't, if you click on it, you're like, oh, all right. And so I guess in theory, I would want to click on, I would want to find more things that were click worthy as I shopped. Exactly. And I certainly find on Amazon that, you know, I was ordering something one day, I don't even remember what, and it said, do you want these robot salt and pepper shakers that you wind up and they walk across the table? And I'm like, Yes, I do. And you know, I never would have I never would have found those on my own, but luckily somebody like me discovered them and bought them and now they got my $11 too. So, I'm kind of curious what does that alchemy look like? Like what sorts of factors do you find are telling in terms of predicting what I would be in, interested in? So, you mentioned geography. Perfect. But but what are what are all the kind of variables that you're going into? Because you're not monitoring my heart rate at this point. <laughs> no. So uh, uh, perfect example, right? You said uh, thank God that there were some people like me who also expressed an interest in these little robotic salt shakers, which sounded pretty cool, by the way. So uh, in this sense, um, a lot of it comes from wisdom of the crowds, right? Um, as much as we would like to believe that our uh, purchase patterns are so very, very unique. Uh, it's easy to think that as humans, there are other people who are possibly similar in the way we uh, purchase things at least. Um, and it's definitely true of life stages, right? In the sense that um, when you are moving out to set up your own apartment, when you end up getting married, when you end up having babies. Um, so there is a lot to do with the context in which these purchases are being made, which you can extrapolate in aggregate from, right? You can learn from the wisdom of house. So uh, besides um, the geographic aspect of it, the second thing that I want to uh, highlight a lot more is the 
uh, sequential nature of our purchases. Yes, the robotic salt shakers were, were pretty cool, but um, if you were to, um, so when I had a baby uh, a while back, uh, the sorts of purchases that I had to make, of course, I had no clue, right? <laughs> As to, uh, and you'll start looking up what were the reviews on this, what were the things, but given uh, what I skew towards, maybe I only buy uh, things from a certain specific uh, uh, brand, or maybe I'm interested in a particular uh, facet um, that it's non BPA and so on and so forth. And you would have been able to infer these sorts of things again. You don't need to know my specific preferences, but you can learn from the wisdom of the crowd. So it comes down to some aspect of uh, what are your preferences over a period of time? Um, what is the context in which you are currently shopping, as an example? And quite a bit is what we call the collaborative uh, filtering aspect. What are people like me uh, also interested in are uh, some of the factors that uh, go into the recommendations that we build. Are there factors you deliberately wouldn't use that, that at some level you think they're just too controversial or they're too uh, invasive or what have you? It's a great question. So um, at least at Criteo, our focus has been pretty much on the retailer side of things. And uh, um, maybe when it comes to really, really specific aspects, I, I don't know if you remember this story from a while ago about Target sending an ad to uh, uh, right, right, right. The woman uh, who was going to have the baby before the family even knew it. Exactly. <laughs> right. So these are the sorts of things that uh, advertising as a field needs to watch out for. Um, but how do you how do you make sure that you don't end up putting people in some sort of a compromised situation is the part that uh, I feel we need to pay a lot of attention to in some sense. Um, so, but this is a hard problem, right? And I think Target's problem was a little bit more because it was also a flyer that they sent home. So it was not necessarily an ad <laughs> that was shown on her device, but they are not necessarily good at figuring out, hey, who is looking at the device right now? So if that uh, uh, ad had shown on that girl's phone, and if her dad happened to be looking at that phone, maybe because uh, it, um, it it might have looked random and it could have been explained away in some sense. But uh, I wish um, as a field and uh, uh, advertising needs to be a lot more cognizant of where do we uh, pass the line. So recommending a wool woolen coat or robotic salt shaker seems innocuous enough, right? Uh, but when it is something a lot more personal, then we need to be a lot more careful that the user is really interested in this as opposed to us be trying to be too smart about it. I see. But even in your example about shopping for stuff for your child, hmm. uh, your newborn, that would be in that area that you could, in yeah, theory... Yeah, but it's something that I'm choosing to do, right? Like, I see. I'm happy I see. to engage with these sorts of ads because I really need help <laughs> in figuring right. out what the right products to buy. So well, um, maybe this whole notion of, uh, sorry, just to finish on that thought, um, that user consent, that uh, I want to be shown ads of this type would really help. And having been in recommendation systems for a long time now, uh, everybody complains when recommendations are dumb and stupid, right? But as humans, we somehow expect machines to be smart, <laughs> right? Like you, uh, how can it show me this dumb ad or how can it show me this dumb article? But the cognitive overload to get that feedback in. Um, and in fact, when my previous company, we had tried exposing all sorts of controls to let humans control their feed. Right? So tell me that you're not interested in this um, entity, that you don't want to see articles like this so I can learn better. And you would imagine that people used these tools a lot more to curate their experiences, but 
the uptake we had was so 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 trivial and it was not for lack of better ui design because we tried out many different variants of it in some sense so there is this um, i also want to say unreasonable expectation that we expect things to be perfect <laughs> and how do you draw that fine balance without asking for too much feedback um, it is an interesting problem you know and retargeting retargeting isn't so much i don't know ethically problematic but it certainly can be annoying i was on this office supply place uh, website to order a ream of paper for my printer right mm -hmm. and i saw that you could order one ream or a box of five or a pallet and i was like i wonder what a pallet of paper costs and so i like click on this pallet of paper and sure enough you know it's $1,900 worth of paper. It would fill my garage kind of thing. And then I clicked back. And then for like two months, every website I go to is trying to sell me a pallet of paper because, you know, I, I made the mistake of looking at it. It was like, I'm not going to buy a pallet of paper, people. Luckily, we're getting in a place because the worst thing is when you buy something, but the system doesn't know you bought it. And so it keeps showing you ads. Yeah, we also called it the fridge problem, right? Hey, I've already purchased a fridge. I'm not going to need one for the next five years. Stop exactly. showing me that. So, but uh, these, I think, are commonsensical things. Um, uh, hopefully, the ad that you are seeing was not from Credio. I sure hope so. <laughs> if it is, please send me an email the next time. No, no, what they're getting good at is uh, I don't want to see this ad anymore. And then. No, but you, you know. would think that even we are able to learn, right? If you had. Uh, if you were an office supply manager, right, we should have seen in the signal that people who buy pallets of paper also are interested in, I don't know, buying a, a cartload of printer cartridges or they are buying huge rolls of uh, um, um, uh, carpet for their office. I'm just making up things. But there is something in the history of your purchases, which is what I talked about, the linearity and the context, right? So who is likely to be interested in buying a pallet of paper? And to be fair to you, do we need to show an ad if you are this one-time buyer who knows for a fact that you are going to buy a pallet of paper? So yes, maybe it helps to show you some options, but it has to be more than just one uh, fat click on an ad, right? So um, there are reasonable things that advertising systems can uh, do, uh, but to be um, what can I say? The, uh, why, are, why is advertising overall as inefficient? Because I think that the incentives are not necessarily lined up. There are some folks who are okay with just paying for clicks, right? So the click could be on any random ad and you get paid. And so, yes, let me just put the worst looking ad. And I hope you remember these, uh, well, not hope, hope you don't remember, but these yellow teeth ad which used to show up for a while for a long time, right? Like, why are these ads even being created in the first place? And so maybe just optimizing for clicks is not a good idea. You need to be optimizing for something that matters, right? That it's actually a sale that is going to happen. And uh, there's this whole notion of incrementality that I personally believe in. If you were anyways going to buy that exact palette of uh, um, paper, it doesn't matter that I'm going to show you 20 ads about it, right? Because you've already made up your mind. You're going to get it. So why do I need to show an ad? But what matters or what should matter for an advertiser is what else do you buy because of that ad that was shown, right? So it's not already the thing that you were supposed to purchase. So I think the more the industry matures, again, I believe online advertising is a fairly 
recent industry in some sense and we are just about figuring out what is the right objective functions uh, what should matter for our advertisers at the end of the day what would be the right business model that we have to build these are questions that are actually being worked on and credio is uh, um, also uh, in the space of coming up with business models that make more sense for our advertisers so i think it yeah we are evolving <laughs> Well, that is a good place to leave it. It's been a uh, delightful hour. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us. Um, thank you, Byron. I had a fantastic time chatting with you as well. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.